I, I think that reparations is absolutely necessary. Generations of folks will be able to, their life experience and, and their opportunity will be enhanced because of what happens now. Poor white folks probably have as much in common as black folks. If people keep talking to each other and you realize that you want the same thing that I do and I realize that, that your, your life is really no different than mine, even though opportunity in the, in the way things are is going to be greater for for uh, for white folks. You, you change the conversation, you change the dialogue, you change you change the visual, you know. But the impact is is the same. Well, this is why we're still stuck. This is why we're still having conversations about inclusion in 2020. You, you know, that shit was all supposed to be oops, was all supposed to be resolved at the very latest. Uh, in, in the 19th century, uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation that freed all, all the slaves, you know. If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. Hi, I'm Stan Bertelot, and this is Back in America. Today I'm speaking with someone who wants to be a voice for the voiceless, someone passionate about civil justice. I'm talking with Thomas Parker, or Tommy, as he likes to be called. Tommy is 67. He was hired as a janitor in 1979 by Princeton University. Since 1983, he works for the print and mail services of the university. In 2011, the university recognized your engagement with the Martin Luther King Day Journey Award for lifetime service for your role as an advocate and an advisor to co-workers and your dedication to community service. Indeed, you work hard both at the university and in the community where you lead many organizations to help the underprivileged. In the early 90s, you organized with the Labor Relations Director Fred Clark the first Labor and Management Committee on campus to help with day-to-day -day processes and contract enforcement and mutual consideration for bargaining unit protection under the Collective Bargaining Agreement. Today, you are the President of Princeton Service Employees International Union, Local 175. Tommy, thank you so much for accepting to share your story with Back in America. Well, thank you, Stan, uh, for inviting me to, to share this story. Uh, it's a great opportunity uh, and, and it's wonderful meeting you. Allow me to ask you to take us back to your early days when you were a child. You know, what is your first memory? Tell us where it was. Describe what you see around you. What do you hear? What smell can you recall? Well, uh, one that immediately comes to mind, I literally can remember John Kennedy's inauguration speech, which was a morning. I'm up home, breakfast uh, is going on, and, and it was on uh, How old on were you? TV. Had to be eight. Eight? Yeah, had to be about eight years old, yeah. Who was home with you at the time? Uh, my mother. Yeah? My mother. What, what did she do? My mother was actually a domestic. She uh, 
did laundry for folks. She did catering for some of the local uh, markets around town, as well as uh, private uh, engagement, private parties for various citizens in in the community. And she also uh, was a babysitter or or the precursor to what are now daycare centers. She, uh, you know, there were any number of children that were mm -hmm. uh, raised in my household. What was it like to be Tommy, eight-year-old, living in Princeton? Uh, at that time, you know, I can't imagine being anything else but fun. What comes to mind is, you know, I always see, always look backwards and I see the, the past as, as uh, these uh, Sunday school moments. It's always kind of bright, playing with my sister and brother and, and my many friends. This was, it was a neighborhood that had a lot of kids, you know, a lot of kids. Uh, so it was, it was pretty cool. In fact, it was, it was, um, a very diverse community even then before we start using terms like diversity. Predominantly black or African-American and Italian at the time that I was growing up. Uh, previously, it had been largely uh, black and, and Irish uh, community. So as we prepared this interview, you told me that you grew up in a family of activists. When did you realize that your family was different, more engaged maybe? What form did it take at the time? A lot of it was around uh, was around the uh, the dinner table. My aunt was a civil rights activist uh, in 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 the time of the Freedom Riders and and um, early on, uh, her her best friend, one of her best friends, was uh, Coretta Scott King. At times, would come by the house and she would have an assortment of folks with her. I asked my aunt. I said, "Well." Who were the folks that used to come to the house with you occasionally sometimes? I said, you you, you, you dealt with the Freedom Riders? She said, oh, you mean uh, like Andy and them? I said, Andy? She, she said, yeah, Andy Young and, and uh, you know, the, all, he, all these fabled characters, you know. I'm, I'm saying, wow. The Freedom Riders that Tommy is talking about were civil rights activists who rode interstate buses into the segregated southern U.S. in 1961 and in the years after. They were challenging the non-enforcement of the Supreme Court decision, which ruled that segregated public buses were unconstitutional. The southern states had ignored the rulings, and the federal government did nothing to enforce them. The first Freedom Riders left Washington, D.C. on May 4, 1961. So what was the first march uh, you, you went to? first march I actually attended was at Princeton High, as a matter of fact. Uh, we, uh, there, there was some activities with civil rights marches and, and, and the uh, war going on at the time and a student protest and all that. So that was kind of my first official march. You know, and, was it big? Yeah, yeah. It, it was big. We, I know some of the high school students left from, from Princeton High, uh, university students, uh, students in the area, you, you know, and we marched over to um, IDA, the Institute of Defense Analysis, which was on campus, real, real big strike. And it was at the time, um, during the same period of time that the students at Kent State were, were shot. Let me ask you, you know, we all know that America was founded on the, on the principle of liberty and justice for all. Yeah. This, just, this country has been a melting pot for immigrants. And yet, black people, their story is a bit more complicated than that. 
you know, what was your first experience um, of racial discrimination? Well, again, I don't know that it was anything overt, but I was I was kind of sensitive enough and in tune enough to kind of realize that I was uh, being treated differently. You know, um, one of the first things that I kind of witnessed uh, that was relative to that didn't directly involve me, but I was a witness to the fact that they had a, a, a sit-in on Nassau Street at, at um, one of the lunch counters. Oh, my gosh, what was the name of the place? But it was, it was simultaneous with the, with the, the luncheon and uh, a counter sit-in that happened in North Carolina uh, in, in uh, Greensboro. And so some of the older young folks sat in and demonstrated uh, here uh, because we couldn't sit at the uh, counter, at least not in the in the same section or at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah, you know. Here you in know. Princeton. Yeah. Well, Princeton was a little more subtle, but you, but but it was a connected chain of events. Even as a, a child, I, I was the, the fact that you'd be followed around, walking around in a store or something. You know, you would could do like the other kids. Did, did that happen to you? Yeah, yeah. More, on more than one occasion. I had one guy, one old guy came out and just let me have it. And one of the stores uptown used to sell newspapers out front because he thought I was going to take the money that was in the uh, tray. You used to just leave your change in, in, in a tray, you, you know. Uh. So in uh, 1979... You got hired by Princeton University as a janitor, and did you quickly uh, become interested in the labor movement? The president at the time uh, was a plumber, and we we're talking. So he said, "Well, would you be interested in being a shop steward? We need uh, some coverage out here." And you, you know, and, and uh, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about unions, but I said, "Yeah, sure." Well, you know, I'll give it a look, and uh, began to to study uh, you know the processes and, and what what's involved in the in the history of of the the uh, labor movement and how the 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 irony of it being kind of tied into always being tied into the civil rights movement mm -hmm. but also having to kind of clean up their own act you know immigration uh, you, you know not only racial immigration female uh, you know integration into process largely white male so this country has had difficult relationship with the uh, labor union right in the 20s i believe the government came down on the socialist party in the 50s you know the government um, started taxing the labor movement and in recent years uh, trump took some steps against labor union and even criticized the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industry Organization. Why do you think this country has had such a tough time working with labor movement? Well, it basically, you know, I think at the ultimately at the end of the day it comes down to very basic values and principles. They, uh, the has versus the has not greed, the fact that the labor movement has kind of ensured that people were treated fairly, uh, working in safe conditions, uh, paid a, a fair wage, all of which took money out of the pockets of uh, the haves, the rich and the owners. 
And how has, in your experience, uh, been the relationship between your union and uh, the university? The group that I came from, which I was actually kind of surprised about, considering how labor and education and labor and major industry don't always mix. The university, I'd have to say in all honesty, has had a pretty open-minded relationship with us. They, it hasn't been extremely uh, obtrusive, you know, in, in, in the sense that they, they, and especially after the creation of this labor management uh, coalition that we, we put together, it's, it's been um, a, a good opportunity to come to mutual mm-hmm. agreement, you know, kind of a lot of a, a lot of win-win type dialogue, and they've been receptive to that. So t- take us through some of the achievement that you brought along at the university. The greatest achievement uh, was, was building a, a working labor relations process. One of the things that, that came about that uh, along with a fair wage and, and a decent benefits package and, and that kind of uh, relative uh, mutual engagement in, 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 in that process, the, the allowances with that, but, but also, for instance, uh, a change in the uh, pension program to make it a more equitable process, which uh, we got everybody to the same place probably about 20, 25 years ago now or, or more. The service group at one point used to have one pension plan and the administration and the, and the educators had another pension plan and that was seemed to be that that, that was seen to be top heavy. Right. You can't do that, you know. Right. Right. So uh, through any number of engagements and conversations, like I said, their willingness to receptiveness, they realized that hmm, you're right, and we're going to change this. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it kind of balanced out everybody's opportunity as it relates to Princeton plan. And do you have any relationships with oh, uh, yeah. with the students? Absolutely, the students have been. Uh, a great asset, a tremendous allies, you know, in the labor process. They're very, they're Give me some examples. very in tune. Um, well, again, if we go back to the strike uh, moment, the students participated in 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 the process. That you know, their their voice being like, these are the folks to clean clean our our, our buildings and 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 feed us, and they deserve a fair. Opportunity. So your experience um, promoting your work as a, a labor union person at the university has been good. The, the, the university has played on your side pretty much. Uh, how about the membership of the union? You know, I, I read that for young guys, for young people, uh, unions were sometimes seen as a bit dusty, uh, things from the past. And, you know, do you find that you stay attractive for young folks? Well, yeah. In fact, it's, it's uh, surprisingly enough, we're, we're probably more attractive lately. And even as I began to participate, not, not, not because of me or anything like that, but that's what I meant. SEIU in, in general is pretty progressive. All right. So they kind of take on ideas of change, all right, and the 
in fact, have reached out and encouraged uh, a lot of these uh, young folks, uh, the students, to participate so so they can stay relevant, you know, right. you know and, and stay in touch with, with what's happened. And it's been because of that kind of progressive thought and kind of keeping the uh, social justice and, and, and consideration in the forefront and in mind also ties folks. And that never, you know, it never really gets dusty. Folks will always try to come up with, can't we get away from the, the, the from the past? Well, you know, uh, one of one of my officers, uh, this young lady, <laughs> stated in a meeting, which was right on the money. You always talk to us about living in the past, or can't we get away from the past? How can we get away from the past when the past presents itself in the present? The way you are treating these employees and the way you're treating workers is very reminiscent, very much like the things that we have debated with you guys about or had agreement about from the past. So let's talk about your engagement with the community now. You've been obviously extremely involved with the uh, labor union at Princeton University, but I know that you've got so many hats in the community. What do you do? Well, part of, part of that has always been the kind of principle of giving back, you know, making the best with what we got, so to speak, and not be beat down by any kind of circumstance. That's like you, you had uh, used the phrase, that kind of a voice of the of the voiceless. And again, driven by those 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 uh, same principles. I know for me growing up, there was always somebody's, uh, uh, you know, father in, in the neighborhood that if he's going down to the park to play some ball, say, come on, son, you know, you come and go with us, you know, uh, or, or, or the elders in the communities that made sure that we were, got culturally involved. Uh, you know, going out and soliciting funds to take us to plays and things like that. So, we, you know, our experience is going to be the same as uh, anybody else. I think I owe that much to my community, you know, to to stand up and be a voice. The work I do uh, with the uh, Civil Rights Commission still largely about racial issues, but there's so many other things that come in, in into play. Uh, the protections for women's rights, the protections for for our our new neighbors and 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 uh, immigration for access and opportunity. There's a lot of uh, working poor here. It takes organizations or individual activists to um, keep that in the face of the world, so so they you know, you know people will be able to take advantage of or at least know that there there is opportunity available. Everything we discussed here, and obviously. You know, it, it it comes from your own experience as a black person has been tinted by the racial issue in this country. Today, uh, as we move on to the election years, right. uh, we are talking about the reparation for the black African American. Uh, what's your view on the reparation? Well, I'm kind of I, I kind of have mixed. I think it's a process that should happen. I think it's something that absolutely is still a relevant dialogue, but you're going to get you're going to get mixed mixed review about about the process because, quite honestly, one one of the statements that has come out with, from folks that have been asked, largely black folks, is that there's not enough that you can do that can 
pay yeah. for and and uh, what my that question, experience has been. Yeah, and I was wondering, has it got to be a financial reparation? No, but that's where the dialogues have to continue. It doesn't necessarily have to be finance per se, but even, even if you use the, the, the uh, principle that the, the whole idea of reparations was born out of, like the, the promise to the slaves 40 acres and a mule, you, you, you know? Now, is that directly cash? Not necessarily. But in folks' mind, they 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 see it as a as a money issue. Reverence can, can also be about kind of guided opportunity uh, for education that, that that some family couldn't afford to because of the circumstances that that they have been made to live in, mm -hmm. all right, or have been uh, has been guided to or dictated to, uh, and so you end up in this kind of endless. Yeah. Cycle of of uh, uh, wage disparity, uh, poverty. Uh, you, you know that we we really spend very little time talking about how someone's think without reparations. On the one hand, uh, the African American uh, population or community as a whole will never catch up. You mm -hmm. know because you're already starting behind. Uh, and way what do you, behind, what do you, you think? Yeah, you know, I, I I think there's truth in that. You, you know, you know, um I I think that reparations is absolutely necessary, but I think it has to be something that has to be like some more thought, more dialogue to it because it has to be sustaining. Generations of folks will be able to their life experience and, and their opportunity will be enhanced because of what happens now. And And I'm going to play devil's advocate now, but some, you know, some people, white people mostly would say, look, I mean, this is stuff from the past. Let's move on. I'm not responsible for what happened. You guys are didn't live through slavery. I mean, let's put it behind us and let's move forward. I'm not saying I agree with that, but what would you say to such a statement? Well, you know... I'd a lot of it brings on, especially with some white folks, they automatically take on the shield of defensiveness, this mm -hmm. guilt. Nobody's guilt. blaming you. Yeah, I think you it's a very or, strong wall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, or, or trying to guilt anybody for what happened in the past. But what you have to be willing to look at is the circumstance of what happened in the past and where that is clearly reflected now like you take it like for instance uh, some of the cities some of the inner cities all right white flight you, you know and how all the opportunities left when 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 white folks uh left and, and they have to kind of look at the whole consideration for reparations has nothing to do with you right now it's more the greater impact of what the experience for black folks has been in in this country never allows them to kind of be truly uh, equal to take advantage of the American dream, be clear about dialogues about 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 race and and there are like I said I I have to smile sometimes in the number of conversations I've had like this is learning how learning how we communicate. And talk to one another, but also learn how to how to hear. 
right? If if if, if I I can't take responsibility for how you assess and judge what you hear. It's more about where it was supposed. It was more about the promise, the the, the mule being kind of symbolic with. It's a mean of production. Economic uh, yeah. success, all right. Like the okay. more the more mules I have, or the more horses that I can trade. You, you, you know, mm -hmm. like I said, it's kind of a seventeenth uh, and eighteenth, uh, not I mean eighteenth uh, and nineteenth century type uh, philosophy. But you know, something that would help me keep going. Like if I if you gave me some land to work and mules to work the land economically. I'm, I'm successful, you know, and I, I can grow that, right? And that opportunity never came about. So now you're talking about the trillions of dollars or, or even more. You can't even put a figure on it, really, that the, 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 the slave labor did, right, along with the, with the disparity in kind of cultural development and how that impacts your success and how you live and, and what your opportunity means. Right? All that was taken from. And so therefore, it becomes scary because the first thing that folks even consider, even if even if they don't feel personally guilty, is it always goes back to a immediate cash deal. Wealth, mm -hmm. money, you know. We have no opportunity for wealth. But the 40 acres and a mule concept was that was a form of wealth. I have land yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you know and all that. And how do you translate it to today's term? Yeah, and and exactly. Where would that go from then to now? And that's why you'll have some even in amongst the uh, black community that would say, you know, I I don't necessarily agree with reparations because you you there's not enough to pay for where we were and what we came through and where we are now. And something that you said, which is uh, striking, is underst understanding the black experience, which obviously as a white guy, we have a pretty tough time understanding. Right. Uh, do you think that this country will ever, ever leave the dream of Martin Luther King? I, I am the eternal optimist and very always very hopeful. And I, I think... Yes, because I think that um, we make moves in that direction as a society and as a people, and, but you have the powers that be that also see that and in order for them to control the outcome and kind of keep things where they are, they, they will twist the conversations, they will pit to have nots against one another by giving some opportunity and others not, or not dealing with issues like conscious or unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the kind of things that need to happen. And 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 put like I, like like I said, Stanley, just a very basic principle of dealing with the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have folks that are hurting, and you can't not see that. Right, that's why I do it. You know, every four years, you, you know, like like clockwork almost. You'll you'll have uh, two weeks out of the campaign season where somebody will actually bring up the, the question of poverty and 
the working poor. And then, you know, that gets shuffled around in, in unemployment numbers and any other figures like that. And then the conversation stops. Poor white folks probably have as much in common as, as, uh, as black folks, all right? And, and I really think that, that if people keep talking to each other and, I re- and, and you realize that you want the same thing that I do and I realize that, that you, your life is really no different than mine, you, you change the conversation, you change the dialogue, you change, you change the visual, you know, but the impact is, is the same. Well, this is why we're still stuck. This is why we're still having conversations about inclusion in 2020. You, you know, that shit was all supposed to be oops, was all supposed to be resolved at the very latest uh, in, in the 19th century. Uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation and freed all all the slaves, we made citizens win. You know, some some years after that, with all the full rights and and uh, principles. But um, if you're going to be a realist, it hasn't completely played out. But I am hopeful that we will live Martin's dream. And, you know, and to some degree, we really are. I think that, I think that, that in fact, that there was a period of time where we, I don't want to say we're satisfied, but lost consciousness because things were changing and changing at a when was kind that? of rapid rate. I'd say in the in the sixties and in seventies, you you know we we were hopeful. We were believers, mm-hmm. all right. We were caught up in the love of things that everybody was, and others just kind of sat back and waited. You know, let enough time go by. Let let's. Let's look at, you make the language on cleaning up uh, uh, these things that are going to make us all all equal. And when there were a number of things that went down in the books, right, and 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 in, in the law and in legislation, you know, we, we, we became to think that, oh, wow, yeah, okay, things are. Yeah, it's moving in the right direction. Right direction, you know. And so and what we, happened? Ended, we, we ended a lot of the conversations. We, yeah. we, we didn't prepare the kids who are now, Asking us about the truth of all, of all this, like, well, this is not what I, what we feel, or what we, or what we see, and and again, to to your question, it goes back to like, well, why are we, why you know, why are you, why are you guys stuck? Why are you still talking about this? Because things really haven't changed a whole lot. So I always tell folks, you don't give up, just keep pushing forward. You know, call it naive or pie pie in the sky, but you know, I believe in humanity. I, I think people given the opportunity and given the preparedness will change, are willing to change, want to change. Ultimately, like I said, at the end of the day, when you have a converse, conversations at a grassroots level with the very basic uh, needs and concerns of folks, they're pretty much all in the same place. And when they're having those conversations, they, 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 their, their mouths drop open in amazement with like, wow, that's, that's exactly how, how I feel. What would make me think, just because this guy looks differently than me, that he would want anything less for his experience? But the only way to do that is to keep communicating and not just talking for the sake of talking, talking to take an action. All the all the great changes in the history of the world have come about 
largely by the push from young people. Mm-hmm. They said, we're not putting up with this nonsense. This is not the world that we want. This is not even the world you guys told us it was supposed to be. And they will push back. The generation of millennials are, are in recent times, the most like the group of young folks that, that I was and you the were. The 60s, yeah. Yeah, they, they kind of came came about. They're challenging things. They're they're creating these movements. They're very much in the know. They're 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 very much politically uh, considered, absolutely. You know, you know, with, with great influence and uh, impact. And I love it. You know, and so uh, so I think that's you know what you said about this optimistic spirit of yours is a great way to to end this conversation. But we, before we do that, I've got two more questions for you. What is it to be an American? What it is to be an American? I, I think I would have to fall back on, on the principles and values that this was formed by. To be champions of freedom, to be champions of uh, a democratic process, and not a democratic process in a political sense, but more in the sense of opportunity. Everybody, everybody matters. Everybody counts. Everybody has has some say. Now, society can, can title that in any, any number of forms, but at the end of the day, that is what America is, the land of opportunity. You know, all those, those principles actually matter. They, 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 they motivate the, for you, you know, for centuries they motivated the, uh, the world. That's why folks want to, want to come be here. It's, 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 uh, another thing about America that, that is, almost unique, not completely unique, I would, would say, is that if we disagree with something about those that are uh, ruling or those that are in charge, we can speak up. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything to worry about, or, or we shouldn't have anything to to uh, worry about, about, you know, you, you're going to be uh, imprisoned or killed because you have an opinion that happens to be in opposition to what the ruling class says. You know, you, you, you know the fact that you can go from uh, from poverty to to fortune, given the opportunity, this is what what America is. You, you know, to to be a janitor and yet to be leading so many organizations. Exactly, you know, and that and that's the whole thing. And and, and actually, that's a good observation and and a good uh, good point. That was one of the things that I I've, I've said many times on campus, but also in t- in talking with young folks. You can't let anybody else define who you are or what your experience is. Like, no is not an option. If if you have a dream, follow that dream. If there's an opportunity, go after it. Go after that. Titles don't limit that. Is there any book or movie that you think everybody should read or watch? One book that always stuck to me, when, when I was in... High school. I guess I was a senior in high school. Anyway, I read a book called "Man Child in the Promised Land" by Claude Brown. That was written in the '40s, all right, about this young black man's experience. I want to say he grew up in 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 Harlem, but just some of the kind of social dynamics he went through. I'm saying, like, wow, you know, this is still going on now. I can relate. I can relate to this. And it was also in a, in a period of time when 
uh, some of the students at the high school, uh, we, we actually, we had uh, Black Students uh, Association, um, our Black Student Union at the high school. And um, one of the things that we created in terms of our experiences, we want we wanted the reading, uh, the literature to be expanded, to be more in, inclusive. Uh, you know, who says that a classic is a so-called classic or where are there other classics that you guys haven't looked at? And so one of the, one of the books uh, that actually uh, got on the list was this Man, Child in the Promised Land, which, like I said, was very, was prize winning, was very well re, very well renowned, you know. Uh, so, and then also another one that comes to mind was uh, I know why Cage Bird sings, uh, Maya Angelou, you know, mm. and just so some of the folks that you know uh, during that era that we were able to pick up and, and read Perry Thomas's Main Streets. Uh, uh, again, this was a, a Puerto Rican young man. Uh, but ex, ex, you know, you know the similarity of experiences. I think he was in in New York. Okay, thank you so much. One last question, uh, and for people listening to this podcast, they cannot see you. They don't. Uh, they don't know. But I'm wondering, is there any significance, any meaning with the hearing, uh, the ring you've got on the what is it, left side, right side, left side? Yeah, in front of me. Well, you know that that's 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 actually a pretty good question. I uh, first got my ear pierced. Wow, when I was probably about nineteen. But it was also doing uh, that was one of the things that was more about the ear that we were in. You know, that was kind of the the whole revolution and 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 the revels without a cause. You know, uh, uh, you, you know, so ear pierced uh, then. So I've literally had my ear pierced for almost 50 years right? during various periods of time when I would wear it or, or, or not wear it. And, and the left side, as I recall, was symbolic at, at the time with uh, kind of the movement, you know. Uh, and, I, and I don't mean movement like the, the black experience or anything. It was just kind of I don't know. The, it was rebel, the, the rebel, rebel trend, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even before my hair thinned out, I, I had dreads and stuff too. Oh, you did? You know, kind of tribal. You know, that tribal thing. That's that's the word I was looking for. You know, so. Tommy, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your experience with me. Well, thank you, Stan. I I hope. I always, quite honestly, always have a problem talking about me because I kind of just I, I do things because it's in my heart to do them, not necessarily kind of. Looking for that pat on the on the back, but it becomes hard to kind of express that. But I, I am proud of to be an advocate, civil rights and social consciousness, and 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 giving back. That's what that's really what drives me, Stan. Giving back to the community. I want folks to experience to be as hopeful and optimistic as mine has been, despite the fact that I know um, you know what's going on and how the world is. It's not a naive concept at all. It's just it's. It's a motivating power, you, you, you know. Um. Well, it came out very clearly. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. How was it? I thought it was pretty good. I, I think it was a conversation as opposed to an interview, and that's, that's always better. I was hoping my wife would come because she's, she's someone who's done a lot of work 
with uh, young folks in the community. She's also has been my kind, my my rock. You, you know, it kind of helps keep me going. That was Tommy Parker, an activist, a union president, a janitor, a mailman at the university here in Princeton. See you soon on Back in America. And if you like this podcast, make sure you share it with your friends and your family. <laughs>